Amen. Thank you, Brother Jerry. Thank you, Ensemble. Somebody said that you have not yet lived until you found that for which you would die. It's an interesting thought. Go ahead and get in your Bible to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. This is our 10th uh, and uh, final message on the practical doctrine that we've been talking about now for about three months. Our culture usually fails to understand where rightful authority comes from, how leaders are supposed to use rightful authority, and how those who follow should rightfully respond to rightful authority. And certainly, failing to understand these things is hastening the deterioration in our culture, and it is also hastening the deterioration in the Lord's churches. I do believe uh, that some believers do understand rightful authority. They do understand how it applies to leaders, how it applies to those who follow, but all of us, uh, whether we like it or not, we are subtly influenced or sometimes not so subtly influenced by our culture. And in case you had not recognized it in yourself, all of our flesh hates authority other than our own authority. the glory of God, I did not teach on the subject because I'm aware of any problem here uh, beyond any normal problems that churches have and people have interacting with one another. I've taught this because I want the Lord's church and I want our homes to be more like our Creator designed them to be. When churches and homes and marriages are like our Creator designed them to be, they're a lot more secure. And there's joy available for the people who are involved. I also didn't teach this because it's the most interesting stuff. Uh, I taught it because it's a great help. God, of course, he himself is the ultimate authority. But because no one can visibly see him today on earth, nor can they audibly hear him, uh, God delegated some of his authority to something we can see and can hear. He delegated it to his written word. And then in God's written word, he delegated some of his authority to certain people under certain circumstances. He delegated authority to husbands over their own wives, one equal, submitting to another equal to fulfill a role designed by our creator. He designed and delegated some of his authority to parents over their own children, one equal, submitting to another equal to fulfill a role designed by God, the authority of a pastor over the congregation he's been called and chosen to lead, one equal, submitting to another equal to fulfill the role of God. And as you've heard me say now 10 times, God did not give authority to husbands or to parents or to pastors to do what they want to do. God delegated some of his authority to do what he wants done. So if you're someone with delegated authority from God, understand he has placed you there in your circle of life to do what he wants done. Last Sunday night, we concluded three weeks of applying what we had learned in general about leaders and followers to our marriages and to our homes, and then last week to the Lord's church. We saw how in Hebrews chapter 13, how it applies to leaders and followers of all sorts, but first and foremost, it directly applies to spiritual leadership, pastors and to the people who look to them. 
And God, of course, has a beautiful plan for the relationship between a pastor and the people and spiritual leaders and uh, those they lead. It's a beautiful plan. It's His church. And we spent time talking about our relationship here in the church and then made some practical applications of those things. And so as we begin tonight, like I have with each one of these, I want to encourage you to believe in God, just like you believed God when you learned that salvation was by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you believed God and received Christ and were saved. I want to encourage you to believe God and what He has to say about our relationships, or what He teaches us about our homes and our marriages and His church. Being a follower of Jesus is about more than what happens to us when we die. It is about us in life, learning how God wants us to behave ourselves and to have the kind of relationships that our Creator intended. Now, most of us understand that one of our least favorite words in the English language is the word submit. The English language, submission as a word, is somewhere near the bottom of our vocabulary along with words like obey, follow, punctual, taxes, and alarm clock. By now I hope that you understand that the right kind of submission of someone who follows their leader is a part of God's plan for life. One equal submitting to another equal to fulfill a role our Creator designed. But did you know that the word submit is for leaders as well as for followers? So as we close this thought out tonight, there is a foundational principle that has been implied throughout several of these messages that I want to focus on a bit tonight. If you are able to stand, if you would stand please in honor of God's Word, the title of my thought tonight is The Joy of Mutual Submission. The Joy of Mutual Submission. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father of God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. By the way, you notice that's a sentence. The sentence began in verse 18, went all the way to verse 21. Verse 22, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. He's the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be unto their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, gave himself for it. Thank you, you might be seated. And though we all struggle to do so, most of us are aware of the importance of using the time that we have been given in verse 16, redeeming the time because the days are evil. See, it wasn't just evil days into which Paul wrote when Nero was the emperor of Rome and he wrote uh, imprisoned very often in his life. Uh, you and I also have been placed in some pretty evil days. 
And so pretty obvious that not only is our life short and not only is the ending of our life unclear, I mean, understand we have evil days and we need to use our time wisely. It's important. Most of us here tonight, we desire to be wise. We desire to know and understand God's will. In fact, we really desire it, especially when it comes to ourselves, and that's what he says in verse 17. He says, wherefore, which links verse 17 with verse 16, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And so he is going to, as this sentence ends, he's going to list several things that are wise, and they are the will of the Lord. Uh, it's a little bit of a list, you might say. First thing he lists in wise behavior and knowing God's will is sobriety. In the beginning of verse 18, let be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. The second thing he lists at the end of verse 18 is to be filled with the Spirit, to have everything we do controlled by the Holy Spirit, even as a drunkard has everything they say and everything they do influenced by alcohol. Those who are filled with the Spirit have that kind of relationship with the Holy Spirit. Everything they do is influenced by Him. The third aspect of the will of the Lord and wise living is singing the right kind of music, especially when we gather and assemble together in verse 19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Notice the word yourselves. In a, an epistle written to the church and the believers in the city of Ephesus, this is about our singing, about our music together, and we're clearly told to sing spiritual songs that are driven by the melody rather than the rhythm. Notice the fourth command, that we would be thankful people, not just thankful for the things that we consider to be good, but thankful for all things in verse 20, given thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Being thankful for all things is a higher level than being thankful in all things. A good place to start is just to be thankful for things you and I consider to be good. A nice place to, be grow, to grow to would be to be thankful in all things, even when we don't understand them. But I think ultimately God would have us to grow to understand that we can be thankful for all things as a believer, knowing that God doesn't allow anything to come into our life that is not ultimately for our good. In fact, I know the scriptures say, and many of you do as well, uh, we know that all things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Listen, if you love God and you're doing what God has called you to do, everything in your life, whether it seems good or not, is something that can work together for good. You want to thank God for it. It's part of being wise, part of understanding God's will. The fifth thing that he mentions is our focus tonight in verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Mutual submission. Because properly doing so is evidence of a healthy fear of God. By the way, be very cautious of any modern day bloggers or speakers or writers who tell you that living under grace, we should never have any fear of God. Now, while that may make human sense and humanly reason out, understand the New Testament is filled with living under grace and having a healthy fear of God. This is just one place. 
At this point, the Holy Spirit, as the sentence ends, is going to apply this mutual submission, this command he just had to the husband-wife relationship. And he does that in verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. So what is that? That's an application of verse 21. It's not surprising. God always begins instruction with a follower and then he instructs the leader because he never just instructs one without the other. And though we don't think about this probably like we should, a husband's unconditional love for his wife is him demonstrating his submission to her in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. See, these aren't roles assigned by a Baptist preacher. They're not, uh, th- th- these are not roles assigned by any church or any government. These are roles designed by God. Designed by a creator who loves us and would have us have healthy relationships in every area of our life. Now, most of us, we're pretty familiar with verses 22 to 25. In biblical churches, they are rightly preached and taught all the time. Uh, In fact, on Sunday nights here recently, we have read verses 22 to 25 several times. I hope we've come to understand over that time that uh, uh, what God means by those things and that we have a renewed desire to fulfill the role he designed in our life. But somehow, we generally overlook verse 21 when we consider the subject of authority as it's set forth in the scripture in verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Certainly applies to all leader-follower relationships, but it most especially applies to its immediate context, which is a husband-wife relationship. We understand the submission of a wife to her own husband. We've talked about that in, in some detail. One equal submitting to another equal to fulfill a role God established. By the way, a wife gets to fulfill that role in an, uh, with a man. She had 100% say in who he is. 100% say. There are no arranged marriages, at least as God is concerned. But we speak less and even skip over the submission of a leader to a follower. A husband, in particular, to his wife. In fact, it's pretty obvious the Holy Spirit considers a husband unconditionally loving his own wife with the kind, and equating it with the sacrificial love that God uh, had towards us. He equates that and links that with some form of submission to her. See, a loving husband is looking to make his wife happy whenever he can as he tries to lead her. And a wise and a godly wife, she doesn't try to usurp her husband's authority as a leader when he chooses to try to use his leadership to make her happy. A loving husband should be, if he is loving like Christ tells us to love our wives, he should be seeking the good of his wife. And a wise and godly wife doesn't usurp the authority of her husband when he chooses and grows to be able to do that. Uh, she understands that he is using his authority for her good. That, that, that's what you should be doing. There's a story told about a man who was driving down the road. His wife was next to him in the passenger seat. His mother-in-law 
was in the back. And frequently the mother-in-law would chime in from the back, you're driving too fast. You're driving too fast. And his wife, with about equal frequency, would say something like, you're f- move, move to the left. You're, you're too far to the right. Get back in the center of the lane. And this had gone on for a while. And finally he just looked over at his wife and he said, who's driving this car, you or your mother? See, see a wise and a godly leader is looking to submit to those they lead because they are leading in the interest of those they lead. It's very different from doing what you want to do. And at the same time, wise and godly followers are not trying to take authority from their leader when they use their authority in the manner that God intended it to be used. And God here describes a kind of love that seeks to meet the needs of your wife and to seek her good as submission to her. By the way, you don't get to decide what your wife likes most. Despite the fact that I kind of feel like I have a good handle on that. She often doesn't agree. She decides what she likes most. And though my wife is supposed to be in submission to me, I'm also supposed to be in submission to her as I try to lead our home. See, because my goal is to unconditionally love her, I do what she doesn't understand in her interest at times. Because my goal is to unconditionally love her, I do what she prefers instead of what I prefer at times. And that reflects my submission to her. Now, this whole idea of submission, though we hate the word, it is an oft-repeated theme throughout the whole Bible and the New Testament. But submission is nearly always the opposite of our natural inclinations. We just read and talked briefly about husbands and wives being told to be in mutual submission to one another. Uh, Christians in Corinth, they're told to submit to the leadership of Stephanus in 1 Corinthians 16, 16. Followers are taught to be in submission to their spiritual leaders. We talked about that last week, Hebrews 13, 17, and what that means and doesn't mean. James reminded people uh, to be in submission to God. In James 4, 7, Peter reminds believers to submit to the laws of the land, 1 Peter 2, 13. And though this is an oft-repeated theme to you and I living under grace, we all struggle with submission because it is the opposite of selfishness. And though the word selfish does not appear in the Bible, the concept and the effects of selfishness, they occur throughout the whole book. You and I both know we live in a society consumed with selfishness. And if you're honest about your own heart and your own mind, then you would have to conclude that selfishness is a key component of our fallen nature. Selfishness warps our thinking about our marriage. It warps our thinking about parenting. It warps our thinking about order in the church. It warps our thinking about our workplaces. Selfishness probably destroys more homes and marriages than any one thing. And we're all naturally selfish. I've yet to meet the parent who didn't have to teach their children the opposite of selfishness to teach your children 
In fact, we all have to learn and do something other than our natural inclination because our God is not looking for natural responses in our life. He's looking for supernatural responses. Selfishness moves some to say, I will not submit to those. God has delegated some authority over me. Selfishness moves some to say, I will not sacrificially love and serve those God has placed under my authority. I will not use my strength for them. And if you and I don't set aside our selfishness, we will never submit ourselves one to another in the fear of God like we should. And though, like selfishness, it's often repeated as you and I, selfishness is, living under grace, we also struggle with submission because it's the opposite of pride. Listen, it's pride rather than immorality that tops God's hate list. Remember that from Proverbs 6? These six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven, are an abomination to him. Remember number one, a proud look. So we somehow think homosexuality should be number one because we're not doing it. Pride will destroy far more homes and marriages and ministries than homosexuality ever will. And by the way, I'm not for homosexuality. I believe it's an abomination to God. Spiritual pride has destroyed seasoned believers. The Bible says knowledge puffeth up, and spiritual knowledge puffeth up, just like knowledge of mathematics or chemistry or current events or history puffeth up. Knowledge of any sort puffeth up. Every one of us are naturally prideful. But God is looking for something supernatural from us as his children, not natural. Pride moves us to say, I will not submit to those. God has delegated some of his authority over me. Pride moves some to say, I will not sacrificially love or give my strength or use my authority to watch for the souls and work for the good of those God has placed under my care. And pride, just like selfishness, is very natural to all of us. We somehow wrongly think of someone's verbal, they're proud and quiet, they're humble, when that's not true. Some people are quietly proud, and other people are verbally humble. Pride is a condition of our heart. And I don't know of anything that keeps you and I from fulfilling our roles with one another more than selfishness and pride. Selfishness and pride keep a wife from joyfully and passionately submitting to her own husband. Selfishness and pride keep a husband from joyfully and passionately loving his own wife unconditionally. They hinder him from submitting to doing what is in your wife's best interest and what is ultimately for her good instead of your own good. Listen, my wife does not want a deer rifle for Christmas. Or vacuum cleaner. It's pretty obvious that in the obedient reverence of a loving wife toward her own husband, she's submitting to God. We've rightly heard about that for years. And I hope it begins to become obvious to you that in the unconditional love of a husband toward his own wife is also a kind of submission that's good. See, when a husband seeks to love his wife as Christ loved the church, gave himself for it, you know what? When he's looking out for her good, he asks what she thinks about anything that matters and cares what she says. 
When a parent patiently disciplines their own children, they are not only teaching their children about the holiness and justice and goodness and love of our God, they're also, when they ask their teenagers, what do you think about this, and let them have some say in what goes on, they are in submission to their children. When a pastor or a ministry leader watches for the souls who look to them, and they ask what they think should be done. Pastors are, and spiritual leaders and ministry leaders, they're submitting to the people they lead. By the way, that's all very different from being a selfish, prideful leader. And there are selfish and prideful husbands. There are selfish and prideful parents. There are selfish and prideful pastors and ministry leaders. It's just not right. The great enemy of submission in both leaders and followers is selfishness and pride. Now, in some the theology books, they break down and will say this, that selfishness is the root of every sin. I don't really know whether that's true or not. There's a lot of sins there. But if you stop and think about any sin you and I can think of, if selfish is not the root of all of them, it's at the root of most of them. I honestly, I believe if you're here tonight, I believe you do really want the kind of relationships in your life that God wanted. I believe that. You wouldn't be back. It's a part of why you're back. But if you and I don't battle our own fallen nature, our own inclinations to pride and selfishness, we will never have the joy of mutual submission. This battle with our nature, this battle between our flesh and the Spirit of God, which is trying to get us to do what God wants us to do, uh, it rages all the time and brings up a good question. Uh, where did selfishness come from? Where, where, where's all, where, where'd all this pride come from? Well, you get to the end of the creation week and God looked over everything and he said, it is very good. Where did this all come from? We don't need to be taught it. It's inside us. We need to be taught to share, taught to give, taught to, taught to seek the good of others. Where did this all come from? It's a good question. I want to spend a couple minutes on it. If you'd please first go back in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14. I think we all understand that our world is filled with selfishness and pride. When the world's selfishness and pride originated with Lucifer. By the way, if you have a Bible other than a King James Bible, his name does not appear in your Bible. It's only the Bible one place, and it's changed. Even though Satanists call themselves Luciferians, modern Bibles took this out, and they didn't help anybody. But in Isaiah chapter 14, and verse 12, it says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? Here's the record of what happened to Lucifer. For thou hast said in thine heart, notice five I wills, I will ascend into heaven. 
I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. <laughs> Lucifer's five eye wills are the original sin. The origin of selfishness and pride in the creation of God. He was more interested in his own will than the will of the God who made him. He was more interested in his own throne being exalted than God's throne being exalted. He was more interested in having his own glory than he was in seeing his creator glorified. You see, selfishness and pride were not a part of the original creation that God looked back on and said it is very good. It rather instead came from the misuse of abilities and authority given by God to a free creature. Lucifer had heard God speak with his own ears, yet he didn't want God's glory more than his own. Lucifer had seen God's face and the glory of God with his own eyes, and yet he wanted his way instead of God's way. He read God's word. After all, we read that the Bible is forever settled in heaven, but he wanted his word to prevail over God's word. And he refused to submit to the loving and perfect authority of Jehovah God who made him. And selfishness entered our world and pride destroyed him. He missed the joy of mutual submission. And instead, to this day, he lives a life of disobedience and rebellion. And his future is a hopeless future in the lake of fire. But it is not just that in the world, selfishness and pride originated with Lucifer rather than God. Secondly, please go in your Bible to Genesis chapter 3. Brother Wally, I struggle to submit. Welcome to the world. Welcome to life. Uh, if you don't struggle to submit, I, I don't know. Uh, tell me your secret. I'll try it. If it works, I'll tell everybody. We all struggle to submit. Selfishness and pride are at the root of our struggles. We saw how in the world, selfishness and pride originated with Lucifer. In mankind, selfishness and pride originated with the first couple in Eden. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said. And notice the serpent enters the pages of God's word, questioning God's word. Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree in the garden. The woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said unto the woman, <laughs> You won't surely die. Verse 5, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened. Ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes. Isn't it interesting that sin was beautiful? I mean, nobody picks a scabby, scrawny apple off a tree to eat it. Not that this was an apple tree. It was an unknown fruit. It was beautiful. 
was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to desire to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof, did eat, gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. You and I just read of the fall of the first and only couple directly created by God. Adam and Eve carried the future of all humanity inside of them. And they chose to disobey the one command God had given them in the garden, and God gave them that to test them. And Adam and Eve, in making their choice, they brought selfishness and pride into all of, of humanity. It's kind of interesting to me. I've had people who want to smoke pot tell me, you, you mean to tell me that God would forbid me from having some plant? Didn't God make plants? Hey, listen, Buster or Busterette, the first command had to do with forbidding a plant. Not to mention God told us to be sober. And they chose to disobey the one command God gave them in the garden. And they, and especially Eve, they're more interested in a pleasant appearance than in the warning of God. And they, and especially Eve, were more interested in what Satan claimed the fruit would do for them instead of what God warned them would happen to them if they ate the fruit. And they, and especially Eve, they were more interested in the potential this fruit might give them in life instead of the impact their sin would have in their posterity. And Adam, he's more interested in pleasing his wife and being with his wife. He knew exactly what God had commanded. He wasn't deceived. The selfishness and pride, they were not part of the original creation. When God created uh, everything, declared that it was very good, there was no selfishness and pride in it. It rather came instead from the misuse of abilities and authority given by God to free creatures. Adam and Eve heard God with their own ears. They walked with God in the cool of the day. They saw Christ with their own eyes. They walked with God in the cool of the day. And yet they refused to submit to the loving and perfect authority of God, the God who had made them. And selfishness and pride entered their world and our world, and destroyed them. The rest of their life was filled with painful reminders of that bad choice. I mean, imagine what Adam and Eve felt like when they looked back at the garden, now with the tree of life protected by a cherubim and a flaming sword. Imagine what they thought when they got the news that Cain had killed his brother Abel. Don't you suppose something inside them said, you know, we started all this? It's not just that mankind's selfishness, that with mankind's selfishness and pride originated with Adam and Eve in the garden. Lastly, tonight, go to your Bible to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Selfishness in the world uh, originated with Lucifer and selfishness in mankind originated with Adam and Eve and selfishness and pride in us as individuals. It's a result of our failure to humble ourselves and to wait on God. 
And though we are naturally selfish, no one here needs to be dominated by their selfishness. If the Spirit of God lives in you, you have the ability, you have the means, you have the strength through the Spirit of God and the grace of God to not be dominated by your pride and not to be controlled by your selfishness. And though they will never go away as long as you and I are in this flesh, they do not need to dominate our life. Our, can't, our life, it can be dominated and controlled by the Spirit of God instead. And notice what he says to you and I today in James chapter 4 and verse 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. That's not just a song that we sing here. It's a great Bible principle. And though we are all born with a fallen nature, and that our fallen nature and the selfishness and pride of our fallen nature will destroy every one of us if we don't get it in check, we can choose to humble ourselves. If we're not careful, we'll consider what people think of our humility more highly than what we consider God knowing about our humility. So you may think I'm proud, but you don't really know if I'm confident or proud. God knows. By the way, it goes in and out, just to be clear. I know that doesn't happen to any of you all. See, when we think we know who's humble and who's proud, we've put ourselves in the place of God. If we're not careful, we want to be exalted on our timetable instead of God's in-due timetable. Do, do, do you know what I've learned about God's timetable for exaltation? He's not on as quick of a pace as I'm on. Listen, I'm just being transparent with you. Multiple times a day I confess my pride Multiple times a day, I humble myself before God. You say, why? Because I need to. See, humility has nothing to do with whether we're quiet or loud. There are both verbal and quiet people who are proud and those who are humble. Humility has nothing to do with whether we're a leader or a follower. Oh, they're a leader, they're proud. Oh, they're a quiet follower. They're humble. <laughs> no. There are proud leaders and humble leaders. There are proud followers and humble followers. You see, selfishness and pride, they weren't part of God's very good creation. They occur when we misuse the freedom God gave us as individuals. And so I plead with you tonight Battle your selfishness and pride so you don't miss the joy of mutual submission and instead live with a bunch of reminders of your selfish choices. All healthy submission begins with submission to God. Maybe tonight what you need to do is submit to God's plan of salvation. You think your plan of doing good works is going to get you eternal life. You're wrong. The only plan for eternal life is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. 
And maybe what you need to do is submit to the grace of God, the suffering, the shed blood, death, and resurrection of Jesus for your salvation. Maybe you know Christ and you have been saved. Are you in submission to God? As a follower, are you in submission to those who God placed in leadership over you? As a leader, are you in submission to those you lead? See, when you're in submission to those you lead, you care what they think. You care what they want. I didn't say you always do it, but you care and you ask. Mutual submission. God's joy. You can quietly stand.